Back on the line, Lance Dahl and Noah Gardner here with you. We are also now joined by Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama Sports. Going to talk a little Alabama depth chart here. It's going to be interesting. Jeremy, when the depth chart was released earlier today, I was scrolling through it. And I was just kind of looking. I was like, okay, seems pretty normal. Everything seems pretty legit. And then I got to the tight end position. And Billingsley, Jaheel Billingsley, a guy that we saw uh, quite a bit last season, especially later on in the year, uh, a guy that we were all really excited about. He was listed as third on the depth chart at, t- at tight end. What do you take for what, take away from that? Still in the doghouse. And uh, to me, that just kind of makes you feel like, you know, that um, that he hasn't worked his way back up uh, up the depth chart. I mean, we talk about Cameron Latu, what the coaching staff really loves about him. He blocks well. He knows the playbook. Um, and he's a guy that has shown in this in this offseason, in this preseason, that he can catch the football. So I think that the uh, coaching staff really likes him. And um, I still I still suspect that Billingsley will work his way back up the depth chart after he does the things that he needs to do, and that is not determined by anybody other than uh, Nick Saban. But he was the guy that Saban was talking about when he said that this is not a democracy, that I run this program. And that if you're not going to do it my way, then you're not going to get on the field or potentially be a part of this team. So I think that um, that Coach Saban sends a little bit of a message there, not only to Jaleel, but to the rest of the team. And when you're in a, when you're in a program that is built on culture like Alabama's, you can't let something interrupt the culture. And that's what Jaleel Billingsley did. Um, he has a price to pay for that, apparently, according to what I'm seeing on the depth chart, because Three months ago, if you would have told me that anybody was a starting tight end other than Jaleel Billings, they would have thought you were crazy, especially with the production that he had towards the end of the year, kind of especially after Jalen Waddle went down, kind of became option number three a lot of times uh, for Mac Jones. So, um, yeah, that that's really the only surprising thing. I think there's a lot of good players. There's a lot of and ors on those. Is there any potential for Jaleel Billingsley to never make it back to the top? Like, are these other tight ends? good enough to potentially keep him at second string? I, I think that the coaching staff knows that Cameron Latu is good. I think they know that he's physical. Billingsley wasn't asked to block a lot last year because of the system we're in, but now you got a much younger quarterback in his first reps. You talk about a tight end, adding extra protection. Um, so I don't know, man. Listen, I think week five or six, the overall athleticism of Jaleel Billingsley can – can kind of prevail in the situation, but early in the season, Coach, Coach Saban and Bill O'Brien, they're going to rely on a guy that's been there, who um, has been there in the meetings, has, has, a, has a clean track record since he's been at Alabama, and that's Cameron Lawton. And they also like Major Tennyson, who I think is fourth, fifth-year guy. So, Bill, I mean, listen, Billingsley, I'm not, he didn't do anything illegal, and nobody actually knows what happened. I think it could have been something as small as missing a team meeting and then just not – holding yourself accountable and then having that type of integrity that they preach inside of the program. I think Billings is a good kid. I think he's going to work his way back up the depth chart. When you look at the rest of this depth chart, obviously a, a, a position of not necessarily concern, but of interest that we've talked about before on the show, Jeremy, the, uh, the center position it's looking like Chris Owens or Darian Dalcourt in your mind right now, Miami week one, who do you think is going to start? Uh, listen, it it's going to be Chris Owens. I mean, Darian Dalcourt's a good player. He's a number former one, uh, the former number one center coming out of high school. I think out of the the DMV area. But Darian Dalcourt is a very 
I think he can be a very serviceable center. I think that people will view him this year the way that people viewed Chris Owens last year, that if something happened to Landon Dickerson, and as we saw as it did in that SEC title game, that you can plug in Darian Dalcourt, and you might not miss many beats. Um, but the, the whole re- offensive line reshuffling was because Kendall Randolph was a little banged up, and they had to move Cohen around. They just had to move guys in different spots. I think and Echior didn't practice in one of those scrimmages. So that's what a lot of people were able to see. But if, if Kendall Randolph is good enough to play, then Chris Owens will be your starting center. But he's a, he's a guy, he's a Barrett Jones-ish type of player. Maybe not as good as Barrett Jones on all three positions along the offensive line, but the coaching staff feels comfortable moving Chris Owens to guard or tackle if they have to. But, if so, but you know, if, even if Randolph can't go, I think they like J.C. Latham enough to play right tackle. So, I mean, I, I think Owens is your guy, and there, there should be a lot of confidence in Darian Dalcourt. Of course, a wide receiver. This is the guy that you and I were talking about a little bit here. And of course, I'm in Sylacauga today with you at Radio Alabama headquarters. But you and I were talking about this off there uh, at lunch. Jamison Williams emerging as the Z receiver and the number one Z receiver for Alabama. And there's been a lot of talk about this guy throughout fall camp and in the offseason. The Ohio State transfer burning some guys out in that defensive backfield. Yeah, and you always want this guy transfers. Why is he transferring? Could he not play at Ohio State? People could Jake Coker not play at Florida State, comes out, wins a national title alabama you know you have you have some famous transfers cam newtons and everybody else so i mean like just because you something didn't work at ohio state or something didn't work at florida doesn't mean you can't transfer into a program inside of the state of alabama and play really quality football i think that jameson williams showed some sparks last year they really liked uh, chris olavi a lot up there obviously at ohio state and, and his backup garrett wilson ex- exactly so i mean you're trying to find is as a young receiver maybe got happy feet wanted to come somewhere and they saw that alabama lost what three four first round drafted receivers in the last two years and could four find of them a, yeah he could find a spot to play in that i'm really interested in the guy right under him on the z is treshawn holding a six three six four guy coaching staff likes him and you see a jay hall Ja'Cory Brooks I mean Jojo Earl um, listed right there as not not second to Slade Bolden but that slash on Alabama's depth chart doesn't mean second string third string first string that's and or it's a new or for Alabama so Slade Bolden or Jojo Earl in that third receiver slide and Jojo Earl I think he's gonna have um, plenty of opportunities in the return game to make plays but and I think once he does that I like Slade Bolden. He's a possession receiver, doesn't drop a lot of passes, reliable. But this game is about athletes, and you know that. It's about and, route running. It's about getting it's, open and, and getting separation. Can Slade Bolden do that? And JoJo Earl is Jalen Waddle-ish. They're kind of ranked in like the – you know, Jalen Waddle is like the 47th, 48th best player coming out of high school somewhere in that range, and JoJo Earl is kind of sitting there too. Um, they really like JoJo Earl and that whole you know slate of receivers that just came in in that freshman class. I think you're going to see all of them – make an impact, especially JoJo and Ja'Cory Brooks. And as much as Ajayi Hall looked like the featured receiver in the A-Day game back in April, he's kind of like the third thought of all those guys, and you saw how good he was. So I think Alabama's going to be set right there at receiver. You got a breakout player on this depth chart here? Um, To me, I think Jace McClellan can really be a breakout guy. Brian Robinson's going to be your starter. He has earned that. I think a lot of people would say that Nick Saban has that he has earned that um, been loyal to that to a fault like you saw Jalen's whole sophomore year like you knew too was better and Saban almost let it um, ruin a national championship type season if he doesn't insert two in the second half of that game versus Georgia 
But Brian Robinson is a guy who has earned that starting running back position. And the guy right under him, and luckily you can have four running backs on a team that can all get valuable snaps. Chase McQuellen is going to be a heck of a running back for Alabama. I think you're going to have another two-headed monster. And if Trey Sanders continues to progress in his rehab and he's out there practicing hard and I don't think he has anything holding him back, you could have a, you know, there's three dynamic guys and all three of those guys, McClellan, Robinson, and Trey Sanders, they can catch the football. Jeremy, really appreciate you taking the time to stop and talk with us. And yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about Jace McClellan, see if he he can get some more time because in the past, Alabama's kind of gone running back by committee. And I know Brian Robinson's the starter, but it would be interesting to see how many reps Jace McClellan gets during the season. Stick with us. You're on the line. Back on the line, Lance Daw, Noah Gardner, Jeremy Law here with you on this overcast Monday afternoon. Glad y'all are with us as we continue to approach game day for Auburn and Alabama later this Saturday. Alabama taking on Miami. Auburn taking on Akron. This segment want to break down some of the most important things, some of the keys uh, to some of these games here for, for Alabama and Auburn. Want to start with Alabama. Noah, what would you say is one of the things, one of the keys that you're going to be looking at during this Alabama-Miami matchup? Well, one of the top three, one of the top three things that I'm going to be looking at in this Alabama-Miami matchup, not necessarily one of the keys to the ball game, but just things that I'm going to be paying attention to because I still think Alabama wins this game and wins it by more than three scores. But one of the one of the things that I'll be looking at, and we were talking about this group in detail on the Alabama depth chart, is the wide receiver position. You got a lot of new names there, of course. John Mitchell the third, in my opinion, is the best wide receiver in the SEC. Not the best wide receiver in all of college football because I think that's Chris Olave. But when I look at John Mitchell the third, I have a hard time finding a comparison. Or, or finding somebody that gets close to him in the SEC. He is now the leader of this group. But then you've got some other names that are that are entering this depth chart now that really haven't played at all. Of course, you've got Ohio State transfer, Jamison Williams, who didn't play at all at Ohio State. Now you've got him coming in. He's emerged as a starter. And there's been a lot of noise about Jamison Williams throughout fall camp in Alabama. And folks are excited about it. Apparently, he's been giving some of these younger defensive backs some issues on the defensive side of the football for Alabama. That says a lot about Jamison Williams. Then you look into the slot slate, Bolden, JoJo Earl, whoever ends up getting the mass majority of snaps there at the slot. One thing is for sure that this Alabama receiving core has done so well over the last three, four seasons with those four first-round draft picks that are now all in the NFL. They were able to get separation they were able to they were they were exceptional route runners i drool when i see jerry judy run a route for the denver broncos it's phenomenal do they have anybody like that on the roster right now we just simply don't know because we haven't seen enough of them i think john mechie's very good and i think in his first season with the crimson tide that he really got to play a lot last year i think you saw some really positive things now i want to see if he's became a more polished route runner and then these other players we just don't know anything about them we haven't seen them enough and I highly doubt that they are as good of route runners as the previous group was because that group was phenomenal. I highly doubt that they are as good at getting separation as the previous group. But with that being said, I still think that this is a very good receiving core, a top five receiving core in the SEC, and they have the best receiver in the league as well. I'm going to be looking at them, see how they get separation, see if they're able to uh, you know, create those giant gaps of space in the secondary that Alabama receivers have been doing over the last several seasons and making this Miami defensive backfield look bad. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. That was one of my things that I'm going to be looking at is how aggressive is this Alabama offense going to be stretching the field? Specifically, are these receivers, these new young receivers going to be able to stretch the field like some Alabama receivers in the past? Obviously, Alabama was able to do it so well last year. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if Alabama comes out guns blazing, going to be throwing the ball over all over the place with Bryce Young. It's, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, Alabama has a stable of running backs that they could turn to if they don't feel necessarily comfortable with putting Bryce Young, throwing him into the fire, game one, series one, if they want to kind of control the tempo and establish the ground game first before they start airing it out, I could potentially see that. But this Alabama offense was so potent last season and the best way for them to go out there and score score points was stretching the field, was throwing the ball downfield. Mac Jones being incredibly accurate, timing throws well, and hitting guys in stride 20, 30 yards downfield. Going to be interesting to see if we see a continuation of that into this season with new offensive coordinator Bill O'Brien. Jeremy, what are one of the things that you're going to be taking a look at during this matchup? Yeah, I'm looking at the defense right here. So are they as advertised um, a lot? Somebody asked me the other day, can Derek King Manziel Alabama in week one? And I'm just going to say it, it just depends on how good Derek King is. I mean, we've seen him play. He's been a couple, been in a couple stops. I mean, but is this Alabama defense going to be as advertised? Are they going to be ready to defend the width of the field, the length of the field when it comes to this Miami offense? When I think about Johnny Manziel, I also think about guys like Mike Evans and um, what is that lineage of brothers that played offensive tackle for Texas A&M? They were also good. Like A&M had a good roster. Not really sold on how good this Miami roster is, but De'Aaron King is a guy that can make plays. And, and I look at the defense as well. The defense, I think, is going to set the tempo for what they let Bryce Young do. If this defense can get stops and Alabama can score some points early, I think they could let this thing get wide open with Bryce Young. You don't want to have a young quarterback in a tight game and you've built your game plan around Bryce Young going to have to make every throw like Mac Jones had to do against Ole Miss last year to get a win. If this defense can get stops, I think you can kind of see, you would be able to see Bryce Young kind of open up this offense a little bit, but it's going to be defense running game the spread running game not not 2011 2012 everybody don't freak out but that defense if they could slow down De'Aaron King and get some stops I think this offense is going to be able to score points at somewhat of a rate that they were last year yeah and I think on the flip side also when you look at Miami's defense it's going to be interesting to see how much pressure they try and put on Bryce Young heading into this situation where he's a sophomore even though he's only played a couple of games I kind of consider him still in my mind as a freshman Uh, you look at Bryce Young obviously incredibly talented this coaching staff's really high on him Uh, Nick Saban said that he's been able to do a lot of really good things he's kind of been able to elevate this offense even though some of his receivers are still trying to work out the kinks it's going to be interesting to see how often Miami tries to get after uh, Bryce Young. Miami, historically, at least over the past two or three seasons specifically, they've been able to get to the quarterback and they've been able to bring down guys pretty consistently. I mean, they've wreaked havoc consistently. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not that's the game plan to kind of try and put Bryce Young in some uncomfortable positions early, maybe disguise some coverages, maybe try and throw off his game, or if they're just going to try and play hat on hat and try and beat you and just do some simple things instead it's the defensive game plan for Miami I think may be the most important aspect of this entire game because if they can make Bryce Young uncomfortable uncomfortable early like you said Jeremy you do not want a freshman quarterback trying to fight back and trying to regain a lead you want him to get out there and you want them scoring early and often 
Well, if you look back at last year, I think that's the thing that Steve Sarkeesian did so well, and I hope Bill O'Brien's going to be able to do, and a lot of people think he will be able to do, is last year it really didn't matter what the defense did against Alabama. They were going to play the full width of the field, the full length of the field, and it almost made it where it always was, hat on a hat. Yeah, you could play zone, but depending on how you're lined up, Alabama's going to – there's a counter for it. The offense – in college football today has all the power. If you're doing this, this is what we're doing. And it doesn't matter if you know that's what we're going to do if you are doing that. The way you have lined up puts you at a disadvantage for this play. And that's what Bill, uh, that's what Steve Sarkeesian did so good with Mac and Jalen and, um, and Devontae Smith last year with that crew. If Bill O'Brien can do the same thing, I think Alabama, listen, Alabama's probably going to win this game. Uh, it probably might be by double digits, but... I Might. still, I, I still don't. I mean, I'm just saying, like, what is Derek King going to bring to the table? If Alabama comes out and turns the ball. It's over, not about Derek King. It's about Rhett Lashley, my man. This is still oh. the elementary Gus Malzahn offense. This <laughs> know, is still I bubble know. screens. Listen, I think Alabama will win by multiple, multiple scores, multiple touchdowns. But it's, it's what this defense allows them to do. And if Bryce Young can get out there and if he can read a defense, which has been a problem with some Alabama quarterbacks in the past, especially young ones. If you can read a defense, they're going to be just fine. Because if you want to stop the run game, we're going to throw something out, quick left, quick right, and we're going to put an athlete on an athlete, and our athlete's probably going to win. So to me, that's that's probably going to be a little bit of the game plan coming in. Get Bryce comfortable, let the defense make stops, and then you'll probably see a good, a, a solid second half where Alabama just pulls away. Just an interesting thought here, just scrolling through Twitter, Twitter, some news for actually for the Alabama-Miami game. For the first time ever in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game, the roof is going to be open. Uh, so that's going to be an inter- interesting sight to see. Nothing nothing important there, nothing too much to look into. Just thought that would be an interesting note to throw out there. I mean, we got to see that this past weekend. We got to see that with the MEAC SWAC challenge. There was some light in there, some natural light shown in there. And I'm always, this is one of my you know, takes that I have with friends that gets people rolling their eyes. But whenever I watch a football game, I groan when I see that it's being played in a dome. I hate it. I football it. is not made for domes. No, Football man. is not made for domes. It's meant for the elements. It's meant for being outside. It's meant for rain. It's meant for all that good stuff that makes ball better. It why, does. Why would you just think about national title games? You have the two best teams in the country. Mm-hmm. Why would you rely? Why would you let weather play a factor into who's better in that game? Raining nasty it adds snow. to the story there's a reason why they don't play like when they played that super bowl a few years ago in new yeah. york don't do that again play it in the south or play it in a dome it felt like in the national title game in 2017 alabama georgia that was there the roof was open because it was right when it opened that year leaking all over the place i'm sure they fixed all that stuff but if you were there that day you know that that roof was just dropping water everywhere for four quarters yeah, I I, I kind of agree. I, I I like what what uh, Noah's saying. I agree with Noah, but I also agree agree with Jeremy. Like in terms of like the national championship or like playoff games, I do kind of want to set it in a dome. But at the same time, it is nice to have those snow games, those rain games, those windy games. Uh, those always, like Noah said, it plays a part in the story. And the Bills I, and the Colts can say they played in four feet of snow. You know, it's, I mean, that's yeah, a it's big cool. Deal. <laughs> it's cool. But in terms of like figuring out who the best team in the entire country country is yeah if we can kind of control the environment I think that's going to be really important my final uh my final thing that I'm going to be looking at 
is can Derek King actually make enough plays? It's something that you touched on, Jeremy, your first thing that you were looking at. Is this Alabama defense as good as advertised? And if it's not, can Derek King expose that? Is he mobile enough to actually make some plays with his legs whenever things break down? Is he going to be able to make smart enough decisions against this really stingy Alabama linebacking core? I don't know if it's necessarily going to happen. It might happen for a quarter and a half. That's kind of what I've been predicting is that Miami will somehow manage to either have a three-point lead or hold on uh, for a quarter and a half and then everything just kind of falls apart. I think Alabama starts to game plan. I think they start to change uh, things, make some adjustments. So that's kind of my final thing that I'm looking at is can Derek King make enough plays? Uh, but I, to answer my own question, I don't think so. He's going to have the chance, I think. I think that he's just so good, but is 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 the Alabama defense good enough to take it away? I think it, it's going to rely – these games against these types of quarterback relies on your defensive line to get pressure in itself and let your linebackers go side to side and make plays. Alabama's got the best linebacking group in the country, probably, um, especially if you lay it out on paper in the preseason. That is subject to change, so don't hold me to it. But if Alabama's defense is as advertised, Derek King is just not going to have enough room to make enough plays. I have one more key that I want to look at on this defense that – when I'm looking at this game, this is sticking out to me. Jalen Armour Davis emerged recently, last couple of weeks, took Kool-Aid McKinstry's starting spot. I mean, take it, took it right out of his hand, all right? And Kool-Aid McKinstry is listed as an or at the second spot on that backup to, to Jalen Armour Davis with Kyrie Jackson, who Nick Saban mentioned by name in his press conference last week as somebody that he was impressed by. Like, I think there's some real competition there, but apparently there's, you know, and Jalen Armour Davis was another guy that Nick Saban said was playing really well last week when we were listening to his audio. Jalen Armour Davis is the guy that this offense, the Miami offense is going to go after. You're not going after Josh Job. You're not, the, the safeties, they are good enough to protect over the top. This is a very good Alabama secondary as evidenced by how they played last year. But the newcomer to this group that really hasn't played a whole lot is Jalen Armour Davis. They're going to go after this guy. Let's see what he does. On the other yeah. side of this break, we are going to continue breaking down some of what the thing, some of the things that we're going to be looking at for both Alabama and Auburn's opening weekend games. Stick with us. Wrapping up our number one of the show, Lance Dahl, Noah Gardner, Jeremy Law here with you on ESPN 1067 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. You can find us on Twitter at ESPN 1067 and at Fox Sports 983. To wrap up the show here, we kind of want to go through some reactions from the weekend. Some college football happened. It's finally that time of year. I was so excited to finally get to sit down and watch some college uh, football. The Braves are on a hot streak. Noah, what were some of your reactions from this weekend? Well, you mentioned the Braves. They bounced back in a big way after dropping two midweek games to the New York Yankees that may have put some seeds of doubt in the you know, the Atlanta Braves fan base, making them wonder, well, can they hold on to the to the division when you've got so many tough series left in the last month of play or so? And the Braves bounce back in a big way against the NL West leading San Francisco Giants, which that team may be the best team in all of baseball. I say may because there are some other teams in the American League that I think also have a claim to that spot. But the San Francisco Giants have been number one pretty much consistently all season in the NL West, and that is one of the best divisions in all of baseball when you talk about the fact that they're playing the defending World Series champions, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the San Diego Padres are no slouch. The Rockies, although they're 10 games below 500, that's still one of the better, that is still the best fourth-place divisional team in the National League. Nobody else in the National League in fourth place has 60 wins. 
and then uh, the other, then two out of the three in the American League have that many. So you, you're talking about the the Rockies are still one of the better fourth place teams in the division, and the Diamondbacks, of course, have one of the worst records in all of baseball. But uh, look at what the Braves did this past weekend. They took two out of three against the Giants, and they did it in a big way yesterday in the rubber match with a beat them nine to zero, peppered them with home runs, and they're still on this road stretch here. They're going into it now where they got to go and take on the Los Angeles Dodgers, and then they've got the, a reprieve, a little bit of a reprieve against the Rockies. So once again, I, I talk about the Rockies, still relatively tricky, especially when you're going to their place. But you've, you've got the Dodgers here. If you could take two out of three against the Dodgers again, you're going to be able to hold the Phillies at bay, who are now on a three-game winning streak. They're, they're trying to get back to their winning ways. But once again, I go back to they've been playing the Diamondbacks, one of the worst teams in all of baseball. So they start up a series with the Phillies starting tonight at 6.05. That's another team that's not very good. The Phillies have a chance to make this thing interesting if the Braves lay an egg against the Dodgers. But this past weekend, the Braves did what they were supposed to do. I shouldn't say what they were supposed to do. The Braves the Braves did what they needed to do to keep a decent lead over the Phillies in the division. Yeah, I cannot stress enough how important of a series this was against the Giants for, for Atlanta to go out there and win because, like you mentioned, the Phillies playing against the Diamondbacks lost that first game but then won three straight. The fact that Atlanta was able to come out of the weekend still four and a half games uh, ahead in the uh, the NL East was really surprising to me. The Phillies, uh, after after this uh, series against the Diamondbacks, they'll go on the road to play Washington, and we need Washington to step up in a big way in that matchup because, like you mentioned, uh, the Braves going up against Los Angeles, that game, uh, the first game of the series starting tonight, uh, it's going to be interesting uh, and exciting to see how Atlanta tries to continue momentum. It's going to be really, really tough. Like you mentioned, the Dodgers, Giants play in one of the best uh, divisions in all of baseball. Might be the best division in all of baseball, the NL West. So, yeah, that was one of my takeaways from the uh, the weekend that the Braves were able to get get the job done, essentially. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily expecting a sweep, but for them to win the series was really, really important. Let me point this out, too, about the Colorado Rockies, and, and that's a four-game series coming up at the end of this week. It's it's the beginning of a seven-game road stretch for the Atlanta Braves, starting with the Dodgers tonight at 9-10, which is going to be on ESPN. But we go back to how deep the NL West is with as talented. The NL West currently has two teams with 80 wins. You look across baseball, there is only one other team that has more than 80 wins at this point, and that's the Tampa Bay Rays at 82 and 48. The NL West has two teams above 80 wins, and the fourth-place team still, once again, I go back to this, is only 10 games below 500 and has 60 wins. No other team in the NL in fourth place has 60 wins. For the NL West, and of course, the Diamondbacks are that bad. They are 44 and 88, but the Diamondbacks are not enough to sustain alone the NL West having four quality baseball teams. Now the Rockies, once again, below 500, they're not great, but I don't think that they are as bad as their record may suggest or a team being below 500 this late in the game. I still don't think that's going to be an easy series. You look at their run differential this year, they're minus 34, which is right there with the likes of the New York Mets in the NL East who are 63 and 67 or minus 28, right? So like the Rockies, comparatively speaking, are probably just as good, if not a little bit better than like the New York Mets in the Braves' own division, which at this point in time of the season, of course, the Mets are struggling at this point. But you talk about how tight the NL East has been. The Rockies are, are not going to give you a, a, an easy series just because they're in fourth place. This would be like taking on the Phillies or the Mets, in a, in a four-game series on the road. And so this is not going to be a cakewalk, cakewalk for them. I don't think it should be looked at really as a reprieve. I know I said that earlier. 
uh, scratch that. I don't, I don't think you should really be looked at as a reprieve. It's just a, a bit of a step down from playing a team that's got 80 wins. The NL West is sharpening the Braves for the postseason here at the end, and, and you're kind of getting a look at is this team really a contender or not? And and I, you know, I think a two out of three against the Giants is definitely a good sign. Yeah, I like what you said there at the end, sharpening the Braves for a postseason run. I think my other reaction from the weekend, simply because I, I was able to get to see it in person, uh, Auburn's uh, Auburn's open practice. Honestly, I saw a lot of really good things compared to what I what I was able to see during Auburn's spring game. It's the last time I've seen Auburn play in person. Auburn just looked, and I said it in the first hour or first uh, segment of the show, just looked more polished out there. They just looked more comfortable, and it's going to be it's going to be what I'm focusing on in the Akron game. Uh, some 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 of the things that I'm going to be looking at is like how comfortable is Bo Nix in the passing game. How can uh, Auburn get off the field on third down? Are they comfortable in those type of situations? Is this team just gelling? Are they just knocking off the rust and getting things together? Uh, It's going to be some of the things that I'm looking at. That's going to do it for our number one. On the other side of this break, we get to our daily segment of making headlines. Got some interesting quarterback battles figured out. And uh, Cam Newton trying to hold on for dear life to that potential starting spot. Uh, See you all in a few minutes. On the line, live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390. Or toll free at 888-382-7502. You are on the line with Lance Daw and Noah Gardner on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Hour number two coming up here. We're going to start off the second hour with our daily making headlines segment. If you missed any of the first hour of On the Line. You can find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Really appreciate Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama Sports stopping by to talk a little Alabama depth chart, a little Alabama-Miami uh, breakdown there in the first hour. But again, we're going to start this second segment talking about some headlines that we've seen uh, over the past couple of days. Tennessee naming Joe Milton the starting quarterback for the Volunteers, and then Hudson Card being named the starting quarterback for the Texas Longhorns. Noah, does do these two moves surprise you at all? Joe Milton at Tennessee does. I knew that what was going on in Austin was definitely fair game, and at the time that I was making the rundown, I actually did not see that Texas named Hudson Card, so I'm glad that you caught that for me, but Joe Milton at Tennessee is definitely a shocker. And now I'll be completely honest. And and some may take this. This is not a slight against Joe Milton, but he wasn't very good last year at Michigan. Honestly, a lot at Michigan wasn't very good, but I'm, I'm surprised honestly, because Hendon hooker had a much better season last year at Virginia tech. So I'm really curious to see. And of course we don't cover Tennessee football as closely as we cover SEC, uh, as we co- cover other SEC programs, and of course Auburn and Alabama. You know a little bit more about what's going on inside those different fall camps between Auburn and Alabama, but not as much about Tennessee. They must really like Joe Milton because if you're looking at film from last year, Hendon Hooker seemed to be the much better option at quarterback 
going into this year for for Tennessee. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it, Joe Milton was not particularly impressive, and whenever you look at what Hendon Hooker was able to do over the course of a couple seasons at Virginia Tech, uh, you and I both agree he seemed like the more efficient, more comfortable, uh, better decision maker as far as quarterback goes. I was actually talking to uh, Eric Kane. He works with the uh, the flagship station up in Knoxville. Uh, host of Locked On Vols, the Locked On Vols podcast. I was talking with him just a week and a half or so ago, and I asked him, I was like, well, who do you think is actually going to be the starting quarterback? Is it going to be Harrison Bailey? Is it going to be Joe Milton? Is it going to be Hendon Hooker? It's like, oh, it's actually been Joe Milton for quite some time. Uh, Josh Heupel just has not come out and announced, announced it, and it shocked me because, like you said, Hendon Hooker just seemed, whenever you go back and watch him, just seemed like he was the better quarterback. Yeah, and then on the flip side, you look over at what happened out in Austin, a different team wearing orange and honestly a much better shade of orange with the Texas Longhorns. This one will come as a shock for people out there, but I think when you talk about the potential that Hudson Card has as a passer, there has been some word that maybe he's he's got the better arm over Casey Thompson, but we got to see Casey Thompson play last season. We got to see him play in the bowl game against Colorado. We know this guy's good. He had six touchdowns, no interceptions last year, a 71% completion percentage, 225 yards passing. The guy was good last year in his limited time out there. He only had 17 pass attempts total, but Hudson Card only had three total pass attempts. This is Haynes King level type of experience entering this season. He's a redshirt freshman, you know, or do you want to call him freshman? Whatever that looks like, because last year didn't count. So I guess he's still true freshman and they didn't have to use the red shirt on him, but they could have if if not, if, if, if last year hadn't had the circumstances that it did and you didn't get an extra year of eligibility because he only played in two games. Significantly less playing time or significant playing time than his counterpart in Casey Thompson. But the word about Hudson Card is this guy's dual threat, 4-5-40 speed. He's got a great arm. Seems like a fit for Steve Sarkeesian, who's going to really try and spread things out for the Texas offense. 6'2", 195 out of Austin, Texas. Four-star quarterback coming out of high school. Like you mentioned, dual threat guy, number two. Dual threat quarterback in the 2020 class, number seven. Uh, a seventh best, qu- best quarterback in the state of Texas, 59th best prospect overall. Yeah, I was a little shocked by this move because, like you mentioned, you broke down there uh, for a second the numbers between these two quarterbacks and their limited time that they had last season. Casey Thompson really showed out, showed out in the bowl game against Colorado. I mean, he he was just balling out, just throwing the ball all over the field. Uh, Hudson Card, one completion out of the three pass attempts, like you mentioned, for five yards it's we we just hadn't seen enough of Hudson Card to really determine whether or not he was going to be anything truly special and when you look at what Casey Thompson was able to do late in the season it's very similar to what we've seen out of Elijah Canyon it's like oh he could actually be a legitimate threat for us I'm really excited to see him start and then you get closer to the season Auburn's depth chart gets released and he's not listed on the too deep anywhere to be found you look at the, the, the Texas situation Casey Thompson it's like oh really excited if I'm a Texas fan to see this guy at quarterback seems like a really talented young kid's got a great arm Going to be able to do a lot of great things things in Steve Sarkeesian's offense, get closer to the season. Steve Sarkeesian, not very pleased with the way the quarterback position has gone. Hudson Cards, things start to trend toward him. Things start to trend in his direction. All of a sudden, you look up, he's the starter. I don't think this Texas offense is going to suffer, though, because if Hudson Card's the guy that Sark wants running the offense, they're going to score points. And like you mentioned, dual threat guy. He's going to be able to do a lot of different things. Sark's going to like that. They also have one of the best core, uh, running backs in the entire country in Bijan Robinson. 
Uh, they've got some receiver production that they need to replace. So maybe running the football with uh, with Hudson Card and Bijan Robinson isn't going to be that bad of a thing. We're talking about Joe Milton earlier, transfer from Michigan, playing at Tennessee. Want to talk about Michigan for a second? Cade, Mac- uh, how do I want to pronounce this kid's last name? McInerney. Okay, thank you, thank you so much. I was not about to, I was not about to butcher this kid's last name because I looked at it earlier and I barely skimmed through it. I didn't have it right in front of me. But yeah, he was uh, he was named the starting quarterback at Michigan, uh, I believe over Dylan McCaffrey. Is that correct? No, over Alan Bowman, the transfer from Texas Tech. Ah. Which this one kind of came as a little bit of a shocker for me. I think McCaffrey transferred again. He's out. Interesting. So Alan Bowman, yeah, the transfer from Texas Tech, and he was not able to to, uh, to stay healthy throughout his career with the Red Raiders. He was talented whenever he was on the field, like really good whenever he was able to play for Texas Tech. It's just injuries kind of kind of uh, overcame uh, the best of them, able to transfer in from Michigan now. And, uh, yeah, knowing that Alan Bowman's on roster and that he was not able to earn the starting spot kind of surprises me. Uh, you know, Alan Bowman, a really good passer. I'm not sure what's going to be the strength of this Michigan offense this season, uh, but if they feel like Cade's the guy, then Cade's the guy. Well, when a player transfers from another program where he was the starter and then transfers to another program and then gets beat out, that that always that that it doesn't shock me. Like, not that the, that it couldn't have happened. Like, not that Alan Bowman was so good that he couldn't be beat out for the starting quarterback job, but. You're, you're kind of like, man, that stinks because you look at Alan Bowman. He's a senior. This is it for him playing football. Now, I, I guess he could maybe graduate if he doesn't play this year at all, and maybe he could transfer again, but you'd have to sit out. Well, he'd be a graduate transfer, so then you wouldn't have to sit out. But, I mean, I, it, it's I, I had a little bit of respect there for him as a passer, despite the fact that st- the statistics aren't great. I know that he's coming from an air raid offense, statistically from a completion percentage standpoint. Most of the time in his career, he's been above 65%. The touchdown to interception ratio is not great, but name a Michigan quarterback recently that has had a good uh, touchdown to interception ratio. I mean, Joe Milton was at one last year. He had four TDs to four picks. Of course, Kate McNamara last year, he had five TDs, no interceptions. So you had to like this guy going into the season as, as a potential starter. But when you when you hear about a guy transferring from another power five program into a senior season to go and play like he's looking to play. I, I, you know, I would have thought that he expected to be playing this year and to get beat out that that's an interesting development out of the Michigan camp. Yeah. And that hurts. And I, I don't think that this is a perfect comparison, but when you look at what's going on with Joey Gatewood right now, I mean, going to Auburn, got beat out for the starting job there, transferred to Kentucky, couldn't win the starting job there. Now back reunited with Gus Malzahn uh, down in Florida with UCF. I mean, he's got another shot to potentially take that starting job once Dillian Gabriel leaves, and I know this is not a perfect comparison, but you just feel really bad for a guy like that. I mean, just spending their entire college career looking for that one place where they can settle down and they can become a leader and they can play for an entire season, it really hurts uh, whenever you see a guy like Alan Bowman uh, not able to get it done uh, at Michigan. Another headline here, Tulane and LSU relocating because of Hurricane Ida's or Ida's uh, again, I'm not I'm not the best at pronouncing things, but it's uh, they're relocating. I believe LSU relocated to Houston uh, to practice. They're going to be practicing in the, uh, the the Texans facility. And all I got to say there is, man, I hope the state of Louisiana stays safe. I saw the other day. I believe the uh, all the power in uh, New Orleans went out, so I'm just praying for those guys down there in Louisiana. I hope everyone stays safe. And then whenever you look at uh, you know as far as the trajectory of this LSU program. 
And we're going to talk about it later on in the show in terms of their matchup with UCLA, or at least I am. And, you know, lo- relocating to, uh, to Texas to practice, maybe it throws a, a wrench uh, in their plans in terms of where they're at mentally. Uh, well, it's he- another distraction. Right? right, exactly, in terms of where they're going to be heading into that matchup against UCLA. So uh, I, I'm, really, I'm really hoping that everybody stays safe down there in Louisiana. But talking about specifically what's going on in the college football world with LSU, it's not the greatest thing to have to relocate because now you're focused focusing on on that instead of focusing on your uh, your game with UCLA in just four or five days exactly like last football season had a ton of distractions you had a revolving door a quarterback you had three different quarterbacks that played you had the beginning of some of these investigations and whatnot you head into the offseason more distractions you talk about the, the uh, all the investigations all the allegations and whatnot that's all distractions and then you come out of it you're still dealing with covid you're still dealing with the pressures of school there there's just so many pressures right now then you throw on top of that and it's a terrible thing but like i think it is a factor when you talk about this ucla game now you have to pick up shop and you have to go and practice at an unfamiliar place in houston you have to you have all of these other things on your mind weighing in with this hurricane coming in and you're you have to find a way to focus on your your responsibilities at school and on top of that also getting ready for this football game and and let me tell you we'll get to this later when we break down some of our takeaways from week zero but that ucla team is different that is not the same ucla team that you've watched the last couple seasons under chip kelly that team can win that team could win that division we've talked a lot about utah usc arizona state we need to be talking about ucla that's going to be a very good football team this year and i think they're throwing their hat in the ring and last year, they, they were they, the last two seasons, really going down to late in the season, despite the fact that they haven't had, uh, you know, a, overly above 500 football teams. Like last year, they finished around 500. The year before that, they finished below 500. But even going into late in the season, that division has been so bad that they've actually been able to be in contention for winning the division even late into the season, right? Like, like it, they, they could have been three and five going into it late, but the other teams were that bad that UCLA was able to still be in the running if some things fell their way to be able to win the division. That's how bad that division in the Pac-12, that's how bad the Pac-12 South has been over the last couple of years. Now, those teams all seem to be turning the corner at the right time. UCLA looks to be better. There's a lot of hype around USC. You know I like this Utah team very much. A lot of distractions around the Arizona State football program, but Herm Edwards has a very good bunch there, especially on the offensive side of the ball with Jaden Daniels. This UCLA team means business this year, and if LSU's not completely focused going into this ball game, it, it may be at it, it, you may be playing in an empty Rose Bowl because you, we all saw how many fans were there this past Saturday. But I'm telling you, this UCLA team's different. Yeah, when we'll, we'll break it down later in the show in terms of our, some of our takeaways from that Hawaii UCLA game and all the Week Zero action. We're gonna break that down later. But yeah, this UCLA team looks a lot more complete. Uh, under Chip Kelly than they have in the past offensively man if they can stay balanced like they were against Hawaii if they can do that against LSU LSU may find themselves in a tough spot there's a reason why LSU is only favored by three and a half or four points right now final uh, headline here before we head to break Bill Belichick still has not made a decision on the starting quarterback for the Patriots said that he's still trying to make that decision Noah you and I have talked about this quarterback battle I've said that I think Cam Newton's going to start you've said that you've kind of gone back and forth but you think potentially Newton could start as well now with just 10 days away from the NFL season do you think things are trending closer and closer towards Mac Jones being the guy I think after last night's performance or or two nights ago, yes, it was last night. I think after you saw Cam versus Mac last night, 
I think you look at it and it, I think it has to be trending a little bit towards Mac Jones. Cam did not have a good night last night. Cam was two for five for 10 yards and an interception. And he got two drives with the ones. That's what he did. Now in the second pre in, in the second preseason game, Cam had a pretty good outing, but the first preseason game, I think Mac Jones outperformed him. So you look at the first preseason game, Mac Jones won second preseason game. Cam, I think won. Third preseason game, I think Mac Jones undeniably was 10 for 14, 156 yards, averaged 11.1 yards per attempt, one touchdown, no picks, had a QB rating of 131.8. Mac Jones looked great. Now, Grant, it was a, it was it was against the Giants. Giants 0 and 3 in the preseason. The backups aren't that good. The starters aren't that good in New York. But still, overwhelmingly, Mac Jones looked significantly better than Cam Newton did last night. And and of course, he got more playing time, but he upheld a high quality of play for the entire time that he was out there. I've been extremely impressed with Mac Jones compared to all of the other rookie quarterbacks. I think Mac Jones may have played the cleanest preseason out of all of the other preseason quarterbacks aside from, you know, Trevor Lawrence had a really good game the other night as well. So I, I think you're looking at Trevor Lawrence. I think you're looking at Mac Jones as two quarterbacks that played extremely clean preseasons. Mac Jones as a passer may be the better option. Who, who in your mind, if you had to pick between these two guys to win rookie of the year, who would you pick Jones or uh, Trevor Lawrence? It depends. See that. Ah, see, I know Trevor Lawrence is going to start, right? Right. I, I don't know that Mac Jones is going to start. I know I just said that I think it could be trending in his direction, but I could still see Bill Belichick going with Cam Newton from a leadership standpoint, from knowing how to run this offense, from not ju- from just not wanting to send his rookie quarterback out there yet. He may not be ready. When he is ready, I think he'll get a shot because you don't just draft a guy at 15th overall and then not play him ever, right? Like if you draft the quarterback in the first round, they're going to play. I don't know if Mac Jones is going to play enough this year to beat out Trevor Lawrence statistically. So I would say Trevor Lawrence, even if the two guys play, I think that the offense, even if Mac Jones starts week one, I think that the two guys offenses, one's going to be a focused a lot more on their quarterback's ability than the other. And I think that offense is the Jaguars. I think they're going to be putting a lot more on Trevor Lawrence's shoulders considering they don't have a whole lot of talent around him. They're going to be asking a lot from him. Whereas Mac Jones, we know that that offense in New England is about, you know, it's it's more about the collective than any one individual. So, and they're going to try and make things easier on him. Of course, you look at 10 for 14 for 156 yards. That doesn't come because they're trying to make things difficult on Mac Jones. They, they, they're going to try and make things easier on him. So I'll, I'll go with Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, and I'm really excited to see Lawrence after uh, almost having a perfect uh, completion uh, percentage uh just last night he looked he looked really good man I'm really excited to see this new Jaguars offense and then also former Jaguar Gardner Minshew transferring or rather not transferring getting traded uh to the Philadelphia Eagles might be the best quarterback on that roster really excited to see if he gets any playing time yeah I know that might be a little spicy take I'm not incredibly high on Jalen Hurts so I, I I like myself some Gardner Minshew I think he's a very talented quarterback on the other side of this break, we are going to break down all the games from Week Zero, give some, give some of our takeaways from some of the games. We're going to talk a little bit more about that UCLA-LSU matchup, how that could potentially sh- shake out, all that and more on the other side of this break. Stick with us. You're on the line. Forty minutes left in the Monday edition of On the Line. Lance Daw, Noah Gardner with you here on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything you want to talk about Auburn football related, call us 334-332-1390. 
and we will uh, we'll break it down with you here on On the Line. Want to get to some of our takeaways from Week Zero. Five games happened. Nebraska, Illinois, Fresno State, UConn, UCLA, Hawaii, UTEP, New Mexico State, and then San Jose State and Southern Utah. No, I want to start with that UCLA game. It's something that you and I were kind of talking about in terms of where UCLA would find the win, like how they would go about it. And I was saying, you know, you look at what my or Hawaii was giving up on the ground last year. You look at what UCLA liked to do on the ground last season. You look at what they're going to try and do this season. We both thought that they were going to be able to really control the run game in this game. And boy, howdy, did they. 44-10, to 10, UCLA won that game. Zach Charbonnet, the transfer from Michigan, 106 yards, three touchdowns on just six carries. Were you expecting this game to be as lopsided? Because I said I hope Hawaii covered. I thought that UCLA was going to win by, you know, maybe pulling away, you know, in the second half. I thought maybe Hawaii would put up more of an effort from an offensive standpoint because I just don't have a whole lot of respect for what UCLA has done defensively over the last couple of years. But throw that out the window because UCLA controlled this game on all phases up 31 to three early in the second quarter. And then you kind of, you know, let off the gas a little bit, which is how you get to 44 to 10. But what's impressive about it is even when they let off the gas from an offensive standpoint, the defense still held Hawaii at bay and only let them score one touchdown there in that second half. So 44 to 10, you talk about the running game. Of course, Dorian Thompson Robinson came out of the game very early. He was 10 for 20 for 130 yards and a touchdown. Not his best passing performance that we've seen. But once again, I go back to why I picked in the offseason, why I think LSU will still beat UCLA, or at least that was my pick a couple of weeks ago. Still reserved to change that before this ball game gets started. A lot to think about, of course. But Dorian Thompson Robinson has struggled with accuracy over his career has made some mistakes over time. He, he can throw. He sometimes he puts himself in the hot water throwing the football. But when you look at this rushing attack, you talk about all the different dudes who touch the football. I think you can see there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different players carried the football for UCLA. And most of these guys were averaging about five yards per carry, if not more. And when you're talking about Zach Charbonnet, you you see 17.7 yards per carry. And he came out of the ball game very quickly. There's a lot of different things that UCLA can do on the ground. There's a lot of different things that they're going to show you from a scheme perspective, whether it's zone, whether it's power. You don't know what to expect. You also don't know who's carrying the football a lot of times. This is That option game is back. The spread option is back with Chip Kelly, and he's got the right quarterback running it with Dorian Thompson Robinson. Now, once again, I go back to this team is only going to go, and if we're talking about takeaways from this ball game. UCLA is only going to go as far as this season as Dorian Thompson Robinson's arm can take them because there will come a time in order to beat good football teams where he will need to throw the football and make the throws necessary, those clutch throws, those tight window throws necessary to help them win the football game. Well, this element of being able to run the football for 5.7 yards per carry and over you know, nearly 250 rushing yards, yes, that is going to help them win games and it's going to take pressure off of them. So maybe there aren't as many tight window throws. Maybe there's not as much pressure put on his shoulder, but there will still be times this season where he's got to make those tight window throws that are going to help lead his team to victory over squads that can stop the run, that aren't going to let this group run for 250 yards. You go back to the Iron Bowl back in 2013, Auburn still ran the ball pretty well against Alabama. Still got, you know, at that 200-yard mark against Alabama, that 2013 Iron Bowl with a with a rushing attack that is very similar to this one. But what did it take to win that ball game? At the end of the day, Nick Marshall had to throw the ball to tie it up. 
had to had to get the ball to Sammy Coates on that option. And although that is not, you know, a normal play, what that is still evidence of is that you still have to be able to make the plays in the passing game to win, even if you are one of these option teams, or else you're not going to go as far as that you want. And I and I think UCLA does have Pac-12 South aspirations to try and make it to that conference title game. It's going the, the as far as this team will go. They looked great in Week One. The rushing attack is dangerous, and it's going to beat up on a lot of teams. But once again, how far this UCLA team goes will depend on Dorian Thompson-Robinson. So as much as we make this about the fact that they put up nearly 250 rushing yards, Thompson-Robinson was still 10 for 20 for only 130 yards and a touchdown. I want to see more from this guy, and we're going to find out about him when they play LSU. 334-321-1390, the number to dial. If you have any thoughts about the Week 0 games that were played over the course of this weekend, give us a call or text us at 334-564-1840. Yeah, I really, really agree with you there, Noah. I like what you said about as far as Dorian Thompson-Robinson's arm. I mean, obviously this offense is going to be able to be versatile. We saw them uh, control the ground game against Hawaii, but... 10 for 20 for 130 yards and a touchdown sounds like a Bo Nix stat line. And you're going to have to be able to improve at the quarterback position in terms of letting the ball loose, throwing the ball downfield. Uh, and I think this UCL, UCLA offense is capable of that. And then also throw in the fact that LSU is still recovering from one of the worst defenses maybe they've had in history in terms of passing yards allowed per game. Can Durante Jones fix that entirely? I'm not sure. I think he has the ability to do it. I just don't know if they're going to be able to do it week one against a very potent uh, UCLA offense. Another game I want to get to, get some takeaways from this game, Nebraska against Illinois. Now heading into this game, obviously, I think still a lot of people would agree that Nebraska is probably from a recruiting standpoint, a more talented team than Illinois. But Illinois was able to pull out the win 30-22 to on Saturday. First points of the game were a safety. It was Big Ten football. It was just classic 11 a.m. kickoff Big Ten football. Brandon Peters was hurt just a couple of series in. So former Rutgers quarterback Arthur Stakowski had to come in, was 12 of 15, 124 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions, helped Illinois get over Nebraska. I don't want to talk too much about Illinois and Brett Bielema. I want to kind of focus here on Nebraska for a second. Scott Frost, he's not been able to get it done during his time at Nebraska. This is just another game where Nebraska came in and they just looked sloppy, Noah. 100%. And the first evidence of that, you look back – early in that ball game at Cam Taylor Britt, who was tracking back inside his own three yard line, catches the ball over his own shoulder on a punt return. And then as he's getting tackled in his own end zone for a safety, throws the ball forward out of bounds, regardless, whatever happened there, it was going to be a safety. It was his knee was down in the end zone after running into it, threw the ball away. Like that was kind of the first blunder that this, that this Nebraska team had in this ball game. And from that moment on, Really, like, I, I was impressed with Adrian Martinez for about a quarter of a quarter and a half. I was like, okay, maybe he's figured some things out. But then as the game progresses, I start seeing him miss open receivers, just wide open receivers. They would have been big plays. And, and honestly, that kept a, a touchdown off the scoreboard for them that could have possibly resulted in it being, you know, 13-2 to two at, at the end of the first half. And then what ends up happening, it's 9-2, to two, 
And then there's the fumble that Illinois takes back to the house and they tie the ball game up and then they take a lead going into halftime, right? There was these pivotal moments where Adrian Martinez just didn't quite make the throw. You look at a stat line, 16 for 32, 232 yards, one touchdown. A lot was put on his shoulders. He was able to run the ball pretty effectively, 17 carries for 111 yards and one TD. Adrian Martinez, I still think to, to a degree was a bright spot for Nebraska. But one thing that was evidenced in this ball game, if he wasn't able to make wide open throws consistently against Illinois, one, regarded as one of the worst secondaries coming in this year in the Big Ten. If he wasn't able to do that, they're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I completely agree with you. We're going to continue to break down this game and the others that happened during the Week Zero slate on the other side of this break. Stick with us. Lance Dahl, Noah Gardner with you on the line on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama going to continue running down this week zero slate that we got to watch over the weekend going to get give some takeaways from this matchup I want to wrap up what we were saying about Nebraska and Illinois you were talking about Adrian Martinez and when you look at his final stat line I mean he had over 100 yards on the ground obviously that 75 yard touchdown run 232 yards through the air I mean he wasn't terrible but like you said he was missing open throws and if he's not able to do that against a team like Illinois he's not going to be able to do it in week four on the road against Oklahoma he's not going to be able to do it against Michigan State I don't think he's going to have a tough time doing it against Northwestern Michigan Minnesota I mean you go down the schedule and if they aren't able to execute in a game against a team like Illinois they're going to have a really tough time finding wins down the stretch and it makes me question how much longer Scott Frost is going to be here this definitely seems like it's it. You look at the schedule, of course, things lighten up a little bit here. You get to play Fordham and then Buffalo, and they'll win those two ball games. They'll, they'll get to two and one, but then you've got to go to Oklahoma, and they'll crush their will at that point. And then they've got to go to Michigan State, which I don't think will be an easy game, especially, once again, following up the road trip to Boomer Sooner. After that, Northwestern's always a tough team, but I don't think that they're going to be very good this year mainly because of all the talent that they left. And that's one of those programs that's very much so on a cycle. They need to have an upperclassman-laden team to be very good. Do I think that they'll be teetering on a bowl game this year? Yes, because Pat Fitzgerald always has those guys ready to play. But that is a game that I think Northwestern can win. Then after that, they host Michigan. I think that's a game where, honestly, Michigan should look to win that one. I think they're just more talented, and I think from a defensive standpoint, they, they could provide some issues for Nebraska. But then again, we haven't seen Michigan play yet this year. They could be incredibly disappointing like they were last year. At Minnesota, I think that that's a loss. Then they get a bye week. They ought to be able to beat Purdue at home. Then they've got to play Ohio State at Wisconsin and then host Iowa. Like They played the tough teams from the other division. They play Wisconsin and Iowa, and then Northwestern's never an easy team to play. I don't think that they're going to be very good this year, but Northwestern's never an easy team to play. So they play the tough teams from the other division. I don't know if I see six wins here for, for Nebraska, especially there's, there's just not enough games that I think that they'll be favored in in the regular season, and that's probably going to spell the end of the Scott Frost era in Nebraska unless things rapidly change. And I think a big part of that has to occur on the offensive side of the football. They just weren't good enough on Saturday. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's what I was going to say is that I have a really tough time finding a bowl game uh, at the end of this schedule. Uh, don't forget, guys, uh, Nebraska fired a coach that was 66-27 and 27 for a coach that went 19-19, and 19, fired him for a coach that is now 12-21. and 21. 
uh, Nebraska on a just a continuous downward spiral. Want to get to another game here. Fresno State against UConn. For, uh, UConn barely holding on uh, to that FBS uh, title. I, 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 honestly, like we, they, are, they are just on the cusp of, of moving down. Uh, in in the in the ranks, moving down to an FCS school, at least in my mind, because they are they really really struggle against just about anybody. Though it's forty five to nothing against Fresno State. Fresno State, we talked about their passing attack, man. 382 total passing yards from this team. Jake Hayner, uh, 20 of 26, 331 yards, uh, three touchdowns, no picks. Although I will say, whenever you go and watch the highlights. I mean, obviously, Fresno State was able to hit the long ball, but it just seemed like UConn was missing just so many different tackles. UConn just kind of fell apart in this game. And I, there were some people that I saw on social media saying that Fresno State uh, should be a top 25 team within the next few weeks. But I want to hold off on that because when you play a team as bad as UConn, you're probably going to look pretty good. 100%. And, and something that I would point to as a negative for Fresno State in this ball game that I think we need to see a little bit more about the best teams in the Mountain West can run the football. Boise State runs the ball with consistency. San Jose State can run the football, at least they could last year. Nevada out of the pistol for so many years. You know what you're getting from them. A lot of these teams, San Diego State, another team that's predicated on running the football. The Mountain West Conference, although that there are a decent amount of teams in there that still that will spread you out, there's a lot of old school football there still like Boise state and what they're doing, what Brian Harson did there for so many years, San Diego state and another team air force is still running the option. There's still a lot of old school football out there and Fresno state, while they did throw the ball all over the place on, on UConn, they only ran the ball for like slightly over four yards per carry. That's a little concerning for me there. They, they like to air the ball out, but at the end of the day, you still have to be able to run the ball in college football because your passing game's not always going to be the most consistent. And so I'm curious to see if that comes along for him a little bit. I'm still not buying Fresno State as a legit contender yet in the Mountain West. I still think that's reserved for for some of those traditional names like San Diego State and Boise State. Yeah, I agree with you there. And you look at their leading rusher. He only had 58 yards on 13 carries on the day. 4.5 yards per carry was not great. And again, when you look, I mean, you look at the defense for, for Fresno State, they were only giving up what? Let's count up here. They gave up 72 yards passing. They gave up 35 yards rushing. I mean, it was just an incredible performance from this defense. But again, when you play a team that's as bad as UConn, I mean, obviously you're going to be able to do a lot of great things. And I, I agree with you, Noah. In order for, for Fresno State to kind of prove more to, to me and, I, and to, I guess, the college football world that they can be a borderline fringe top 25 team, a contender in the Mountain West Conference, they're going to have to be able to establish a little bit of a ground game. Moving on here to another game uh, that you and I both thought you know, it's the first time since 2016 the UTEP Miners will get a win over New Mexico State, and boy, howdy, they did it in a big way. 30-3 to was the final score. Another really bad showing from New Mexico State. Like you mentioned uh, on Friday, New Mexico State, uh, I believe they had a spring schedule, and they went 1-1 one and one against FCS opponents, and if you were going one and one against the FCS, you're probably not going to beat even a team like UTEP, who had over 200 yards passing and rushing. Correct. And something else to consider, UTEP played football last year. New Mexico State didn't. They played two spring games. They only bring back three stars on the entire football team. It was kind of on the wall. You're like, oh, New Mexico State's probably not going to win this football game. And it, it had one of the closer lines 
in week zero. It's a rivalry game. I didn't expect UTEP to do what they did, 30-3. to Jacob Coing was fantastic in this ball game. I believe he averaged more than 30 yards per reception for UTEP. That was kind of one of the stars of week zero. Yeah, he had five catches for 158 yards and a touchdown, 31.6 yards per reception, almost a third of the field every time he caught the football. The guy was a machine, and he was one of the stars of week zero. Not a lot to take away there. We probably won't mention these two teams' names again all of college football season. But UTEP, uh, I still don't think UTEP's a very good football team, but I, I don't think that they're going to be a bowl team in the Conference USA. New Mexico State is just that awful. Final game here before we shift to another college football-related topic. 45-14, to San Jose State getting the win over Southern Utah. The only reason I want to bring this game up, Noah, is because Nick Starkle is somehow still playing college football, and he is out there balling. 16 of 27 for 394 yards, four touchdowns, one pick. Is San Jose State your favorite to win the Mountain West right now, Noah? They aren't because I still think that there are so many other attractive teams like Nevada with Carson Strong, and we get to say, see them play Cal this week. I think that's a Friday game. That may be Thursday. I can't remember. I don't think that that's on Saturday. Um, I may be mistaken. No, that actually is on Saturday. That's going to be in that Pac-12 hour late in the evening. They're going to be at Cal. You're going to get to see Nevada play if you're still awake and you're one of those junkies like we are that's watching college football into the wee hours of the morning. That'll be an option for you. That's going to be an entertaining ball game. And then you've got San Diego State. They're always a tough team. They've got 17 starters back. Of course, they went 4-4 four four last year. We're, we're down last season, but still 17 starters back. San Jose State is a good football team, and Nick Starkle is what makes this team go. Nearly 400 passing yards in this game against Southern Utah, but it was Southern Utah. And I think San Jose State did all the right things in this game, but there's not a whole lot that we can glean from it. But guess who San Jose State's playing this weekend? They're on the road at the University of Southern California. We get to see them play USC, and I think they're going to put some pressure on USC. I almost put this into a category of potential upsets this weekend. Like, they are an honorable mention. I think they're going to put some real pressure on this USC defense and, and, and expose some issues there on the back end. Nick Starkle can spin it, but the San Jose State team, th there are some other contenders in the Mountain West, like a Boise State. It's a wide-open race, and I think the Mountain West – of course, it's going to fly under the radar here in the, in, anywhere in the country when we talk about college football. But I think there are going to I think there's going to be some entertaining football late in the season when you get those matchups between the San Jose State and a Nevada, a San Jose State and a San Diego State. If you mosey on over to CBS Sports Network at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night, you can watch some good football. And San Jose State will fall into that category this year. Well, you talk about a potential upset in Los Angeles with uh, San Jose State, USC. Then let's go ahead and switch to that topic then. Three potential upsets this weekend, Noah. That was one of your honorable mentions. Do you have another upset that you think is uh, more likely to happen? That LSU-UCLA games definitely got my eye after how well UCLA ran the football. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, when we were talking about week one, about you know, that this football game where we were looking at lines and I, and I said, I would take LSU to cover what was like a four point line. I think at the time, and I haven't checked what it is currently between LSU and UCLA. And I'm working on going and finding that at this moment, according but, to ESPN, it's sitting at three and a half right now for LSU. You see, and, and, and at the moment, because of Dorian Thompson Robinson as a passer, I still think I'm, I, I'm still taking LSU to win this game. But of course there is the distractions and the unfortunate distraction. I, I don't, I don't like to bring up the hurricane here, as you know a factor why they might lose a football game but it is something to consider as a variable that they are having to move away from home this week they have a lot on their minds it's just something else that could you know 
get in the way of them being able to win this football game against UCLA on the road. UCLA ran the ball so well. LSU last year was given up 4.9 yards per carry up front. That's horrible. For an SEC team to be given up nearly half the distance for a first down every time the opposing team ran the football, that's obviously not what you're used to from LSU for sure. And UCLA, I think, is going to be able to get a clip similar to that. The question is, when this game gets to like 38-34 to late in the ball game and LSU is on defense and Dorian Thompson-Robinson is needing a late score to win this ball game, is he going to be able to lead UCLA down the field with his arm? I think not against Eli Ricks and Derek Stingley. Against another SEC team, like a like an Ole Miss or something like that, where they don't really play defense, yeah, I think they could do that. But these corners at LSU, I think, are going to do just enough to give LSU the edge in this ball game. But it is a game that you should be looking out for for a potential upset. That is one of the games that I had listed as well. LSU, 16th in the country right now, taking on UCLA, who is currently 1-0. ESPN's FBI gives LSU a 53% chance to win this game. And for a top 25 team that is two years removed from winning a national title, you would think that LSU, with all their talent, would be favored by just a little bit more in this game. But like we mentioned, the line is sitting at 3.5. We've now gotten to see this UCLA offense. We've gotten to see what this team is about, and they can run the ball like you mentioned, Noah. LSU giving up four and a half, four point nine yards per carry last season. It's that that that's not good. And if UCLA is going to go out there and try and implement a game plan where they try and run that zone that zone spread, try and run that option spread, try and get Dorian Thompson Robinson involved in the ground game, get Charbonnet uh, involved, get get Brown involved in the running game as well, I think UCLA is going to be able to put up points. Now, at the end of the day, I think LSU right now, I think they win a close game, but. This is going to be an incredibly tough matchup week one for LSU, and I think this is a back-and-forth affair. And like you mentioned, I think the determining factor determining factor is whether or not uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson can beat LSU with his arm. Now, I will say he's got an opportunity to do that because LSU, again, had one of the worst passing, attack, or passing defenses in the entire country last season. Is Durante Jones going to be able to fix that? Again, we just have to see, but UCLA, definitely an opportunity to put some points up and to shock LSU. I think that is one of the games that you have to look at as a potential upset. Another another game that you know I've talked about quite a bit this offseason, Notre Dame against Florida State. Notre Dame coming in ranked ninth. Florida State unranked McKenzie, unranked McKenzie Milton. Uh, I think this team in Florida State is way more talented than people are giving them credit, especially with McKenzie Milton at quarterback. I think they're athletic. I think they are going to be able to score points in this game. I don't think this Notre Dame defense is as good as it was last year, regardless of whether or not they bring back a ton of production. And I think their offense is going to hold their defense back in this game. Jack Cohn, you and I have talked about it, Noah. I don't think he's the real deal. You don't have a lot of faith in him either. I think Florida State's going to be able to put pressure on him. I don't think Notre Dame's going to be able to move the ball, and it's going to put Florida State in a lot of good, really good starting field positions where they can go out there and score against a decent Notre Dame defense. I'm picking Notre, Notre Dame to lose this game outright. I think Florida State covers, and they win. I've said that all offseason. I'm going to say it heading into the matchup this Saturday. I wouldn't be shocked if Florida State covers. I've got them on my list but I'm not sold that they're going to win this game against Notre Dame. Uh, the, the Notre Dame defense and I, and I, you know, Florida state outside of McKenzie Milton's where I have questions. I think McKenzie Milton's good. Also, you have to consider that this is, a, this is his first year playing football in a couple of seasons due to an injury that he had. How easily has he picked up what FSU's got going on? You've also got to look at the coaching matchup between Mike Norvell and Brian Kelly. I, I favor Notre Dame in that aspect. I favor the Notre Dame defense. 
I'm with you, though. It's on my list here as a potential game where it could be closer than maybe the experts predicted. I could see an upset here if Jack Cohn just really had struggles out there and Florida State plays well above their weight class here at home. They're, they're, they're at home in, in what's going to be a loud, raucous environment. There's real potential there. Seven-and-a-half point line should tell you that folks, you know, w- w- once again, at seven-and-a-half points, this should tell you that folks see a, a, a decently close ball game when you're talking about how bad – Florida State has been over the last couple of years. I think Notre Dame's got a shot to lose here. The, the other game that I want to go to before we go to break, Georgia over Clemson, o- only an upset in name. I mean, if Clemson's favored by three points, and then it's five versus three, right? For Clemson to be a three-point favorite at home, they just got the home field advantage in the line. That I mean, that's basically a push. It's a pick them right here. I'm going with Georgia to win this ball game at this point. The last time that we saw Clemson take the field offensively, they did not look good, and they had Trevor Lawrence. They had Travis Etienne. They had all of those guys. They only scored 28 on Ohio State, and this Georgia defense is still going to be just as good as that Ohio State defense, if not better, especially from a secondary standpoint. Even though they lost a lot of guys off that team last year, I still think the import of Darian Kendrick, who is playing against his former team in this ball game, Tyke Smith is another guy. You talk about – there's talent there in that defensive backfield. And Kirby Smart, I have faith, is going to be able to get this defense in a more ready position than maybe I have faith in Clemson getting their offense where they want it to be right out the gates in week one. This is going to be a great ball game. I'm favored Georgia at this point, but it is going to be a fantastic football game. And that line at three points, very much so, like that, that fits the bill. On the other side of this break, we wrap up the show. Stick with us. Wrapping up the Monday edition of On the Line, Lance Dahl, Noah Gardner with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Trying to get out of here before the weather gets rough. Want to wrap up the show by continuing uh, to break down some of our potential upsets. But first, I do want to uh, to read something I just saw uh, scrolling through Twitter. SEC has officially announced their event cancellation policy. If one team from the SEC has to forfeit a game in college football this season, they will be assigned a loss in the conference standings, and the opposing team will be credited a win. If both teams are unable to compete, both teams will be marked as forfeiting the game, getting a loss listed in the conference standings. Really interesting stuff there. But to go back to... Uh, our potential upsets. Wanted to get to my third potential upset, and look, this one. I'm not again. I'm not calling this game as an. I'm not saying that this uh, this team is going to upset the other. I just think it's possible. Louisiana and Texas is a matchup that I think a lot of people should have their eyes on. Look, Texas has struggled over the past couple of seasons and openers in games where they should have won. I'm looking at those two Maryland matchups that they lost. Louisiana, able to beat Iowa State last season when a lot of people were really high on them, and Iowa State turned out to be a really good football team. Louisiana brings back a ton of production. Texas, new coach, would be interesting to see if Hudson Card struggles early against the Raging Cajuns. Noah, how do you feel about this pick? Yeah, you know, I have a hard time believing that Texas is going to be caught off guard. There's a number by Louisiana Lafayette's name, right? And so that that's where I'm at. Last year, I think they caught Iowa State off guard, but it is going to be a good game. Yeah, and, and again, I'm not calling I'm not calling for the upset. I just think that there's opportunity for Louisiana to go out there and to just just be uh, play to their standard. I mean, they're just a really good football team. No, are they? Are there any other upsets? on this week one slate that you were looking at potentially San Jose state USC is something that 
I, I talked about a little bit earlier that sticks out to me because I think Nick Starkle is going to be able to attack the USC secondary. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think there's definitely opportunity there. And the, the line is only USC by 14, which is kind of surprising because when you're back in the day, whenever you play, whenever you play San Jose State, uh, you'd be favored by by a lot more than that. ESPN's FPI gives USC a 92% chance to win this game. Uh, definitely opportunity though for an upset to be sprung. Another game that I'm looking at potentially, it's a late game. And it's going to be played on Thursday. And again, this is not an upset on Saturday. I just kind of want to let everybody know that they should have their eyes on this game. Ohio State at Minnesota. Minnesota bringing back quite a bit of production. Tanner Morgan, Ohio State, breaking in a new quarterback. Do you see Minnesota maybe surprising Ohio State for a quarter or two in this game? I think Ohio State's going to cover. I think it's at 13 and a half right now is the line that I saw. I think Ohio State's actually going to cover in this game. Will it be a fun football game to watch? Yes. I think Tanner Morgan's going to do some positive things against the Ohio State secondary, which was pretty underwhelming last year. But likewise, you still have to see Ohio State's a much more talented football team. Will this be a relatively close game? Like, I mean, like 10 points for majority of the ball game? Yes. But then the fourth quarter, that's where we'll see Ohio State pull away and make it 17, 20-point win. I'm looking at like 40 to 20, 41 to 17 something like that but it's a it's a pretty good ball game for the majority of the way through yeah I, I agree with you i agree with you i think there's definitely opportunity but i think ohio state uh definitely takes control in that game that's gonna do it for the monday edition of on the line really appreciate you guys sticking with us if you missed any of today's show go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast we will see you guys tomorrow 